Carl Orsborn and Meredith Sandland have co-written a book that is both timely and timeless. It's called Delivering the Digital Restaurant, and on this week's episode, we're talking about why they wrote the book and how restaurant owners and operators can use the book to build more profitable businesses. I read a ton of business books, like one or two a week, and this book blew me away. It is just on another level, and I don't say that lightly. They are smart, they are generous, and they have a ton of insights to share all on today's episode. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week, we toggle back and forth between a monologue-style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take these uh, complicated marketing concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now... Today is the day, Monday, November 29th, and today at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm kicking off a three-day challenge, and no, it is not too late to join. Simply click the link in the show notes, go sign up, you'll then get an invite to join our private Facebook group. I will be going live today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, covering three different areas of the challenge. All of it happens within that private Facebook group. And guess what? If you miss the live broadcast, so what? It will be available within that private group. You can watch it whenever it's convenient, just so long as you watch it and get involved with the assignments to, to take on uh, the challenges that I'm putting forward. The question is, will you join me for this challenge? So I'm gonna ask you, are you ready to ditch the 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks? Are you ready to get a handle on your finances of your business? Are you ready to, to let your business work for you instead of the other way around? If so, then come join us. You will find yourself surrounded by other passionate operators who are all committed to the same thing you are. I promise that by the end, you will have a better understanding of how to drive more revenue, how to manage your number one expense, and how to get organized so that you can be more efficient and more effective at what you do in the year ahead. It is absolutely free, and I want you to join me. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash challenge to sign up. As always, that link is in the show notes. So my guests on today's show are Meredith Sandland and Carl Orsborn. Uh, they have written a book, a brilliant book, I have to say. It's called Delivering the Digital Restaurant, Your Roadmap to the Future of Food. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to spend some time talking with you. My pleasure. We Great had originally gotten hooked up Good on Clubhouse. I feel like I meet so many uh, great people on Clubhouse. Uh, and uh, you sent me this copy of the book. Um, I tore through it. Uh, thank you for the book. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to come here and talk to me about your book. Uh, right before we hit record, I was telling uh, Carl and Meredith uh, that I adore this book, that reading business books is like a second career to me. I read a book or two a week. Uh, this book stopped me cold in my tracks because of how good it is. Um, and I want to get to why I liked it so much. Um, but before we do that, 
Um, I want you guys to tell me, what was the impetus for writing this book? Let's start there, and then we'll get into everything that's in the book. Yeah, you know, we spent um, a number of years at Kitchen United talking to all kinds of restaurants, uh, every major chain in America, as well as a bunch of independents. Uh, I was responsible for sales. Um, Carl ran operations, and as part of that, had customer success. And so we really heard from a lot of restaurants, both the big chains and the independents, firsthand about the transition that they were going through. And it really struck us that uh, restaurants were aware that things were changing, but maybe not totally on board with how big the magnitude of the change was going to be, and therefore how much they needed to change in order to keep with the times. And we thought, wouldn't it be great um, if there were a book that just explained all of these things, uh, changing it. And then, uh, you know, Carl, of course, had the bright idea that we should write the book. Good job, Carl. I, I agree. I think that was a great idea. <laughs> well, the the weird thing also is, is that the idea came to us before the pandemic. We started the process before the pandemic. And in many ways, Chip, the pandemic helped us accelerate through the writer's block. And right at the very beginning, we realized how important it was to be able to get this thing out as quickly as possible. And it's tough to write a book and to publish a book and get it out on the shelves um, in a less than a year or such. So it, it really has been a bit of a journey. And, you know, one of your specialisms in digital marketing has been one of the aspects that has been fascinating for us too. You know, once the thing's written, once it's published and you have a book in hand, how do you then sell it to people uh, in, a, in a digital medium? So it's been great. It's been a real fun journey. And one of the things I love the most about it is the folks that we've met along the way. You know, we, we interviewed over a hundred different industry executives both restaurants and obviously on the technology side and just to hear these innovators talk about their vision for the future maybe a decade ago uh, and also their future that they yet to see materialize you know things that are going to be coming in 2030 and beyond it's fascinating i mean we are in the middle of such an exciting industry right now and it really is just the beginning I felt that we were, so I moved to New York City here 20 years ago, and I felt like I had arrived here at such a moment. So it was 2002, 2003. I mean, that was the heyday of Food Network. That food in America uh, was uh, was front and center in the spotlight in a way that it had never been before. Uh, that was thanks in, in large part to the Food Network. It was you know, it presented it in a uh, much more palatable way. It was it was part of our psyche. You can draw a straight line to when Food Network launches in 1994-95 to where we are now. You, you can see, you know, restaurants have exploded. There's now not just one restaurant in every corner, but every corner's got four of them. And there are five restaurants between this corner and the next corner. And each restaurant is just as good as the next which kind of all leads into, right? It's a saturated market. It's never been uh, noisier or harder to cut through. Um, and yet tastes are changing, behaviors are changing. Like you said, uh, the pandemic certainly sped that up, uh, but this is not a new thing. It was already starting to change. So, so what was starting to happen before the pandemic? And then we obviously know what happened during the pandemic, but give us some context uh, from your perspective as to what was happening before, what happened during, and then now where we're now where we're going. Yeah, the consumer's been changing for a long time, and um, you know the most obvious part of that change and what the what the book is titled about is about becoming a much more uh, digital savvy consumer and expecting to have uh, digital experiences and digital engagements with brands that they favor. 
Um, that is certainly true. Um, couple that with delivery and expecting food to come to them instead of the consumer having to go to the food. Those things were starting to happen already uh, well before the pandemic, especially in New York, where delivery behavior um, was much more common than it was in the rest of the country. But there were some other trends happening as well. One of them you mentioned, um, I think, brought home to many of us by the Food Network was an evolution in what Americans ate and our expectations of the food that we chose. And part of that was because the Food Network was showing us so much variety and teaching us about things that maybe we hadn't had before. Part of that was about the increasing diversity of the American population and the amazing different unique foods that they brought with them from around the world. Um, and part of that is about the explosion of our understanding of nutritional science, which has really occurred in the last 20 years. And as those things all mix together, our expectations of the food we eat has changed. Um, and I would say in many ways for the better, but in many ways just for the more specific. Um, and what I mean by that is a growing trend toward personalization and toward each of us being able to get the food that we want, the way that we want it, when we want it, how we want it. And for some of us, that means we want to be paleo. And for some of us, that means we want to be plant-based. And it, it just, each one of us has our own way of sharing what we call in the book food as identity. Well, what's so interesting is that that's where the book kind of ends up, right? Like you build to that point and that's uh, so much of what, um, uh, you know, a lot of been said about customer centricity. I don't know if you know Peter Fader. Peter Fader is a professor at Wharton. Now, he wrote a book called Customer Centricity. Uh, he came on this show about a year ago, uh, and he talks a lot about how um, the, the brands that will win in the next decade are going to be the brands that uh, figure out a way to do that, um, to really diversify. I mean, Amazon is the easy example of this, right? Uh, when I log into Amazon, I see one store. When Carl logs in, he sees a different store. When Meredith logs in, she sees a, uh, another store entirely. And if I signed into either of yours, I wouldn't be as uh, enamored with it as when I log in because they know me. They know what I look at, what I buy, what, and they can show me, they can present an experience that is uh, tailored uh, toward me. It's obvious that the companies that do that at least half as well as Amazon does uh, are going to win. I want to come back to that. I want to, I want to stick a pin in that. And I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Carl, if you can walk me through, uh, one of the reasons that I loved this book so much is because you take a bird's eye view, you take a macro look at, again, some of these trends. We touched on some of them, but you talked about, um, in the first third of the book, I'll say, really talking about like how we got here, about how um, convenience became more important to people, uh, not just in this country, um, which is certainly our um, you know, our experience, uh, but internationally. You talk a lot about China and India uh, and kind of uh, how they're further along in this, um, in this process than, than we are. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, those kind of macro trends that we've seen over the last several decades and then what's happening at the international level? Absolutely. The, the trends have, as you say, have been emerging for quite a while. And uh, it's been happening because of other verticals. The, the online customer experience has been shaped through e-commerce. And so what restaurants are going through right now are the same as what retailers and independent retailers had to do in the early 2000s. And that's obviously adapt and relook at the way in which their business model is changing. And in many ways, the, uh, the, the, the things that we're seeing internationally, Chip, is that um, the, the societies have got different things that have influenced them. You mentioned India, for example, um, the way in which India and their use of the smartphone 
has just kind of been fundamental to the success of food delivery ecosystems in India, in the sense that they completely jumped uh, a whole aspect of technology from people moving from uh, from where it was into the kind of smartphone age. Um, Can you just stop real briefly and just talk to me about what they're doing in India? Talk a little. You talk about that in the book a little bit, but for the listeners here who don't have the book yet, um, talk a little bit about what's what's happened there. Well, I think for the the first thing to point out about India is the restaurant dining out occasion is very different to what you'd typically see here in the U.S. Going out to eat in India is a celebration. It's a, I think our interviewee Vivek Sunder that we speak to from Swiggy tells us it's a, it's a moment of gluttony, I think is the, the word he used. Uh, and I think that's an interesting point. And therefore, they put a lot more stock in the idea of actually being able to have food that is prepared at home. And we start the chapter actually talking about the Dabawala system, which is a over 100 years old. It doesn't involve one microchip. And it's all about the way in which food that's prepared at home gets delivered by a logistics fleet of cyclists and handcart holders through to someone's workplace. You eat your food, a three-course meal, and then it's actually taken away from another person, another uh, wala, and he takes that away back to your home. So it's actually a completely environmentally friendly concept as well. And that's fascinating to me because it tells me that people want to have food where they are, but also it can be done without technology. Now, India have evolved this in the sense of having marketplaces like a Swiggy and, and Zomato and people being able to order food wherever they want it if they're not having their lunch delivered. Uh, but they've also been able to do it through the advent of ghost kitchens. Do you know, Chip, there are 5,000 ghost kitchens alone in, in India. Um, so when you think about, yeah, it's crazy. There are so many that have been uh, developed. And again, because there are fewer restaurants per capita than perhaps what we see here in the US, it kind of makes sense because people are wanting to eat where they are. And uh, we coined this phrase in, in the book where we, we, we're moving from an age where people went to food to where food moves to people. And I think that is really what we're seeing uh, with India. Now, uh, elsewhere in that chapter, we talk about China. And China is even probably more advanced with two big players in Maitawan and Elimi. And they have all these various different verticals, not just food delivery, but like the equivalent of a Fandango, the equivalent of an Expedia, and all of those things being channeled together. And that's why we coined that particular part of the book, the the everything store of, of the East. And both India and China do benefit from a cheaper workforce. Uh, but we wanted to temper that particular piece by talking about the UK, where, where I'm from, where actually food is a lot closer to where the consumer is. And actually the takeaway kind of concept is actually something which um, is helped by the fact that food is closer to where customers are. And when we pair that together with the way in which ghost kitchens and this theme of micro-fulfillment and dark stores in general are going to be kind of proliferating across the US in the years ahead, I think that's one of the themes that's emerging. Food is both being created and potentially even grown closer to the place where it's actually going to be conceived. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I, I've said on this show before, I talk to my clients about, I say, you know, stop thinking of yourself as a uh, restaurant owner and think of yourself as a business owner. Um, you spend a considerable amount of time in the book really talking about the numbers and, you know, the margins. And uh, we certainly know this. Everybody listening to this podcast will know this. Uh, we keep talking about razor-thin profit margins, razor-thin profit margins. And uh, and you get into that a little bit um, 
when you start looking at what adding some of these verticals uh, do to uh, the finances of running a restaurant and the profitability of the restaurant, I wonder if you can spend a few time, a few minutes uh, talking about that, because I think that would be of particular interest to the listeners. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, my mentor at Taco Bell and actually the woman I dedicated the book to, Melissa Laura, used to say, you can't take margins to the bank. Um, and that's true. Percentages do not fit neatly into a bank account. Dollars do. And although margins might decline uh, in certain channels, the overall uh, profit dollars might grow. Right. And so I think one of the main points of that chapter is really being thoughtful about um hey, just because the margin might appear lower on a percentage basis doesn't mean that overall you aren't making more money. So first of all, let's step back and acknowledge that reality. But then the second major point of that chapter is that first party uh, digital ordering and delivery can be a lot more profitable than third party. Um, And of course, it requires some volume and doing it correctly. But um, because of the disparity between those two channels, thinking through how and when you use which channel and how to get customers to convert over to first party is a really important endeavor for restaurants, um, even, and maybe especially the independents. I've talked about this on the show. You guys talk about it on the, um, in the book. Uh, there's a great quote you, uh, you use about, uh, about how this, these should be used as customer acquisition. You talk about uh, Expedia, right? Like if, if, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm looking for the quote and I can't find it quick enough. Um, but if you, uh, you know, if people keep coming back to me over and over again, me Expedia, then shame on you. You should give them such a great experience that they can't imagine going back to Expedia, right? They just go directly to uh, uh, to whatever the platform is uh, to book it. And I thought it was a really great thing because they're talking about uh, obviously Expedia from you know decades ago, uh, and the same thing applies to DoorDash, to Uber Eats, um, you know, all of that. That uh, we should be using it, uh, thinking of it in terms of an acquisition tool. Talk talk about that. Yeah, the that that's right. That, that was uh, Dara Karshashi, the current CEO of Uber, uh, when he was actually the CEO of Expedia with that particular quote. And we we wanted to put that out there because, quite honestly, Chip, it's the elephant in the room. It's the one that most restaurant owner operators talk to us about their frustration about what has happened to their business model and the fact that they're not making any money through delivery. And so it was really important for us to have this chapter in the book to touch on the fact that the marketplaces are the customer acquisition tool. And what Dara is is, uh, saying in his quote there is use us to be able to find your customers because they're coming to a place where we can advertise en masse and put millions and millions of dollars into marketing that no individual restaurant can compete with. And so therefore they're coming, the customer is coming to a DoorDash or an Uber Eats because they don't know exactly what they want. So once once they've found you, and once you've created a dish and a, an experience that's going to be delivered to their door, that is amazing. And let's not, you know, de-emphasize that. It's important still to have an excellent experience. The the unboxing of the food, the food being the right temperature, the integrity of the food being fantastic, the packaging actually shouting about your brand, shouting about your first party platform. And I say that because that is the first trick. The first trick is once you've been able to acquire that customer from a DoorDash or an Uber Eats, then you've got to be able to tell them if you've enjoyed this, then guess what? Scan this QR code here or use this little leaflet and come back to us again. And I would almost argue that you need to have a loss leading promotion to encourage them to come back again. Use value again to be able to do just that. So that means that you have to potentially 
lose money twice. But if you're building loyalty, if you're building loyalty, you know, you're, you're and you're and you're setting a new behavior, it's worth its weight in gold. That's right. You are you are encouraging a new behavior. And uh, a big part of the change that's happening here is a change in our understanding of the traditional economics of the restaurant. So again, rather than focusing on those razor thin margins, we're thinking about the lifetime value of an individual customer and how to retain them, how to give them a great experience so they want to keep coming back, how to um, entertain them, give them the best experience possible so that their frequency goes up and potentially how to help them understand your restaurant as something more than just for a specific occasion, but something they might use, um, you know, for leftovers for lunch the next day or for a family meal or something like that so that your basket size goes up as well. And as you do those things and enhance the lifetime value of each individual consumer, the restaurant wins, but also the consumer wins because the only way that happens is if the restaurant is satisfying the consumer demands. The most successful restaurants take brand and design very seriously. That includes aesthetics like architecture, lighting, and music, all the way down to silverware and plating. But a restaurant is nothing without the people that make it come alive. So the natural question is, how do you dress your staff? Stock manufacturing has been crafting premium apparel since 2012 and are consistently called upon by Michelin-level restaurants for their expertise. With stock, you get the best of both worlds, all the style of retail with the price, continuity, and customer service of a traditional uniform vendor. They offer an assortment of everyday items that are ready to ship with no minimum order quantity, and you can make these items stand out with small custom touches like embroidery and and hats and pins. They can also design fully custom uniform plans from the ground up to complement your restaurant's brand, decor, and environment. They are offering a special promotion for listeners of this podcast, wholesale pricing on all in-stock products plus 50% off design fees for fully custom uniforms. Visit stockmfg.co slash chip to get started. Again, stock, S-T-O-C-K-M-F-G dot C-O slash chip. As always, that link is in the show notes. So talk to me about this basket size idea. I mean, this is, so much of this book is just about, again, which is why I love it, because so much of what I do uh, is about mindset shifts, getting people to think differently about things that they've known. And the restaurant industry um, is certainly guilty of this because it's uh, gone unchanged for 250 years. And, you know, you start young and it's passed down and it's a lot of family-run businesses. And we've all been to restaurants, right? We went to The restaurant I went to when I was six is pretty much the same kind of restaurant that I've gone to now at 40. Like, it's just, it's it's the same kind of thing. I walk in, they seat you, they ask you what you want, you tell them, they bring it to you, you eat it. You pay for what you consume, you leave, like it's the same thing. And there's now such an opportunity, again, if we go from being restaurant owners to business owners and really listen to the consumer, right? The convenience is going way up that people want, um, uh, you know, people want more variety, more selection. They talk about behaviors, right? When we talk about behavior now, I'm reminded of like open table, right? To keep it in the in the restaurant world, where for a long time, for uh, let's call it 20 years, uh, open table was the only game in town, and they were a search engine more than anything else. If you were hungry, if you were planning a date, you didn't go to Google to think where you wanted to eat. 
you went to open table and what's really interesting is that like you went and you plugged in i want to go to dinner seven o'clock on thursday for four people and you saw what was available in that neighborhood or in that market um and watching how that how much market share they've given over to all of their competitors now seven rooms talk resi you know all of them um, it reminds me of something, you know, this kind of thing that's happening now here because it's about changing behavior and which comes first, the chicken or, or the egg. So before before we say, oh, this is just what people do, we throw our hands up as operators and say, you know, well, everyone just goes to DoorDash to get their food and that we can't change that behavior. You're suggesting that there is time, there is room to do this, but you have to be deliberate about it. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yes, I think so. I, I think there's there's certainly a, a process to be able to uh, for an owner operator to move through. And you mentioned Open Table. My wife used to work for Open Table in the UK, and she would often come back from work after speaking to restaurant owner operators and say, "There's this great functionality for the restaurant owner operator and the service to be able to write in information about the customers. You know, they like this particular bottle of wine, or they're they're vegetarian, or something. So that way, when they come again." You can have that conversation with them and say, oh, would you like that same bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon? Or actually, we've got this great new salad on the menu. Now, that requires both the service to capture the data manually and also then to utilize that data manually when the person comes in. And today, we're in an age where that can all be automated, not just through the best service channel, but actually through every single interaction. That's why the first party piece makes so much sense as well. So how does this play out? Well, Let's use the analogy of a, just a standard dining experience. You're sat at a table and a server comes over and says, All right, can I tell you about the special of the day? Well, yes, I'd love to hear about the special of the day. Now, that can happen in a digital context. Um, but I, if I'm a vegetarian, I don't want you to tell me about the filet mignon special that you've got going. So that can be accommodated straight away. So therefore, you're starting to be targeted in a, an upsell, if you will, to be able to only know about the things that make most sense for you. And then similarly, if you've got a, a relationship with a restaurant whereby perhaps you're ordering from them every Tuesday because you're in a certain part of town and you love their salad, and then perhaps you don't for a couple of weeks, then you can actually start targeting those lapsed customers and start reaching out to them to say, you know, come back to us and we'll give you this kind of discount and and use these kind of mechanisms and these algorithms to not only just grow your basket in the same way as a server would do as they're upselling a dessert or a special, but also to increase the frequency rate too. So in the book, you talk about this increasing basket size and, and I love it. Again, this is where I was starting to go a second ago that, you know, now restaurant owners can act like business owners and just say, okay, we're in the food service business and they're calling I mean, You talk about it because you talk about the little day parts and that breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? And they, they work in ascending order. Dinner is the biggest uh, segment here and then lunch and then breakfast is non-existent. That was obvious uh, over the course of the pandemic. A lot of breakfast places, uh, everything from Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts to the little guys really struggled in the pandemic because nobody was going out for breakfast. They just made coffee and eggs at home. Um, it was by the time they got to dinner, that's when they started getting bored, tired, you know, they they needed a change. Um, but in the book, you make the suggestion of saying, why shouldn't, why can't you try to sell breakfast, you know, the breakfast sandwich when you're, when they're buying dinner? So they're getting, they're buying their dinner, everything's in the basket, you know, why aren't we offering them uh, to help them uh, cook breakfast in the morning? Talk a little bit about that, about how to creep into other, other day parts, other, other segments and, and how that's really a win-win for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think of my own behavior 
when we order pizza here at home, I often will add a salad on that I have a- absolutely no intention of eating that night, knowing that I'm going to eat it the next day at lunch. And so I'm um, ordering a larger basket from the pizza place because I'm really covering two meals, right? So that is um, one very straightforward way to do it is to just say, well, I know this person's going to be eating again, you know, tomorrow morning or tomorrow lunch. What are the things that I can offer them and how can I use the digital tools to offer them at the right time to have the consumer say, oh, that's super convenient. I will totally um, take advantage of that, get it all at once. So I'm only paying one delivery fee and it's a win-win-win for everybody. They're paying a lower delivery fee as a percentage of their overall order. The delivery driver's getting um, a bigger basket and therefore probably a bigger tip. The restaurant's getting a bigger basket. Like every everybody in that transaction is better off. Well, this, and this is when, you know, this is when businesses succeed, right? When both merchant and consumer, when both sides feel like they're coming out uh, coming out a winner. It just seemed like such an obvious marketing opportunity uh, that I hadn't thought of uh, before I read it in those terms and it made absolute sense um, and yet I had never I had never thought about it in those terms and I just thought, "Oh man, what a, what a missed opportunity whether we're dealing with uh, delivery or not. Delivery just seems to be the most obvious solution, uh, the most obvious opportunity I should say for this." Yeah, I think the the other side of this for me is actually around, the, and we don't touch on it too much in the book, Chip, but the, the idea of dynamic menus and the ability for you to tie together the uh, the ingredients um, that are perhaps going to run out of date soon, they're going to go out of your, their date code, and how those can potentially formulate an opportunity for people to get value-orientated items, much like you sometimes see in a store when something is reduced before they actually have to throw it out. And I think you're going to start to see aspects of that. I mean, restaurants today make their soup of the day for the following day for that same reason. So what's the equivalent soup of the day option that can be used in a, in a dynamic function? So I haven't seen any of that yet, but I think we'll start to see those kind of things come about pretty soon too. This is so uh, incredible. So again, uh, for those of you, uh, again, uh, it's called Delivering the Digital Restaurant. Uh, that's the book we're talking about today. It's dealing all about kind of the digitization, the digitalization of food, the democratization of food. We we, we all do this. We get things um, ordered in. I want to talk a little bit about uh, ghost kitchens, virtual restaurants, all of that, kind of where we're at now. Uh, you, you talk about it being kind of, uh, you know, we're in the MySpace phase of delivery, of everywhere we're going with this. And it's like Facebook hasn't even... Haven't, hasn't even hit the the scene yet, which I, I love that analogy, um, especially when we're talking about, um, again, delivery, third-party partners, uh, first-party delivery, uh, ghost kitchens, virtual brands, all of that. Talk to me a little bit about that and what that means right now and what it's going to mean uh, in, in the years to come. Well, for me, the ghost kitchen piece is something which is still at its nascent stage. Um, I think we've got a long way to go. Um, I think it's still going to be something where we see that different owner operators are going to choose different ghost kitchen models depending on their circumstances. So we've spoken to um, restaurant owner operators that love the idea of ghost kitchens purely for the purpose of innovation. It's a lot easier to innovate and test whether a concept or a new product is going to work when channeling it through a ghost kitchen. Whereas others are so busy with their off-premise business, they want to use a ghost kitchen for the purpose of releasing a bit of pressure out of their current brick and mortar locations. Uh, whereas, you know, the main thing that is sold about them is the idea that you can expand your 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 reach in a capital-like fashion. And all of the various different models that are emerging across the US right now are satisfying those kind of needs in their own little way. 
But ultimately, the consumer is going to win because what we're doing is we're creating kitchens that are closer to the consumer, that are able to therefore get the dishes that are completed to that consumer faster, which is therefore going to enable the drivers to obviously deliver more dishes in, in each hour that they're, they're supporting the restaurants, which is therefore going to make them happier. And by doing that, the dishes themselves are going to be better. They're going to have a better level of integrity. They're going to have a better level of quality. They're going to be warmer or cooler, whatever the right temperature it needs to be served at. And that, therefore, is going to increase more repeat visits. So ghost kitchens are benefiting everyone largely because they are being built to service off-premise. When you compare the idea of food being created in a current kitchen, you're having to really adapt the current operation that is still servicing and having to you know manage the on-premise guests but also add on this additional channel and you know we write in early on in the book about the kind of concept of drive-through and when drive-through came about the enormity of change that operators had to build into their entire operation to actually accommodate the drive-through channel and certainly for those businesses that have a drive-through kind of channel they're now having to build in this kind of pickup component you know for those that are, are doing what we call self-delivery so I, I think this is where ghost kitchens are really helping the industry say look does this help us address any of those kind of three key benefits it's so interesting when we talk about the pandemic right because obviously we you know we had 10 years of change in the matter of 18 months uh, but now look at looking at curbside and and you see um in practice, how a drive-through works, and in practice, how a uh, how a you know prepay you know pre-order and just pick it up the curbside. I mean, it's it, I mean, it's not even close. The, the idea that you would like roll up to a board and read quickly what you think you want, and then they tell you the toll, you roll up to the next one and pay, you roll up to the next one and get it. I mean, it's really inefficient. I mean, there's only so many people. Yeah, it sounds you can get through absolutely prehistoric when you describe it, it that is. way it yeah. is and i just <laughs> and now how neat and tidy it is to just be able to pre-order and tell them when you're in i'm in spot 12 i'm in spot two i'm in spot one um just how much uh, how much easier and more efficient it was i tell the story uh, i was talking with uh, sean walsh uh, on this show uh, a couple of weeks back and I said, uh, right before the pandemic, uh, my family and I went to Paris for the first time, and I had a six-year-old son, He's, he was then four, and we took him to Disney uh, when we were in Paris. And, um, and I told the story about how we waited in line for an hour just to order our food, and then 15, 20 minutes at the pickup window just to pick up our food, and then we turned around, there's nowhere to eat. It was like an hour and a half, we were out of the park, not spending money, not having fun, just waiting in line and then we just went to visit my brother who lives in LA and we went to Disneyland there while we were there to again uh, reward my child for really good behavior and watching the huge changes that happened just in that process just how that whole process was digitized uh, between just in the matter of two years was uh, not even two years was was like mind-blowing to see how much had happened how much uh, more efficient it was with all the QR codes and and their app right you can order food anywhere in the park and then they know when you're arriving because of the the nfc technology and you know you just hit yep i'm here they you go to window four you pick it right up i mean it's so much easier and we're in the park having fun we're in the park spending more money it's the the same sort of thing that disney seems to have learned really quickly now restaurants are learning um again how to how to make more efficiencies how to make more money um, and like you said, the most important part is create a better guest experience. The amazing thing about that story to me is that all that technology existed. It's not like Disney had to go out and create it in order to do this. Um, they just needed the push um, from the pandemic to say, actually, this is how things should be. 
And Isn't that amazing? At like why? I don't know. You know, you think about um, we interviewed Noah Glass in the book of Olo, and he says, I saw these lines as an intolerable problem that needed to be solved. And so he created um, some really awesome order head technology that can be embedded in anyone's website. It's, it's great. But, you know, why didn't Disney see lines as an intolerable problem that needed to be solved? I don't know. Like the way that you meant to say that. it. Yeah. The way that I you say it. I remember saying that in, in December of 2019, we're standing in these lines. I said, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. The sooner I can eat, the sooner I can go out and buy more junk for me and my family. Like I, I'll give this company more money if you can just get me through this process totally. faster. It was, it was, it blew my mind. But yeah, I mean, listen, QR codes were invented in what, 1994 by Toyota, by a Toyota subsidiary. Like we had this, it was the, I think it comes down to again, the behavior and that people will, uh, will very easily, uh, comfortably fall back on what they know and what they're used to. Um, and it is about shifting the behavior. And again, it's that, it's like a chicken or the egg, right? Um, and, and it is a push and pull. It is uh, Seth Godin so often talks about this when he talks about marketing. Um, it's about changing culture, right? We, we're not trying to sell products. We're, we're changing culture. We're shifting behavior. And, and uh, those that succeed do that uh, uh, better than the others. Yeah, and to, to your point about Disneyland, Chip, I, I was there earlier this week as well. And the piece when, when someone is waiting in line, that's the least profitable that customer is going to be all day. And so the more time they're out of a line, the more time they're likely to be shopping in the shops and buying other food concessions and things like that. And that's why they've now released this idea of a virtual queue where you don't actually have to queue up at all, but actually you actually can walk straight up when it's your time. And, you know, bringing that back to the restaurant world, that's the equivalent of these virtual waitlist kind of functionality and the technology that says, you know what, you're now third in line. And the other night my family were here and we said, well, we don't have to leave yet because we're still 45 minutes away. And so this is the way in which technology is enabling businesses to actually make the guest, guest experience better, but also therefore to make um, the, the businesses more efficient too. And they all and they all go hand in hand. I mean, I, I keep, I spend a lot of time talking about technology and, and this intersection of hospitality and tech uh, and how we, we just, we hold on so tightly to the things um, to the things that we've always done, the things that have always worked, except they, they haven't really worked. And I always, I always ask this question. I said, if I told you there was something you could uh, add into your restaurant that would uh, make more revenue, cut expenses, uh, and increase, uh, improve the guest experience, would you do it? Everybody's hand goes up, right? And then I tell them what it is, and all the hands go down. So, well, you, you don't understand. I said, no, 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 time out. I asked you, do you want something that will increase revenue, cut expenses, and improve, increase uh uh, you know, the customer experience, improve the guest experience. And they say, well, yes. I say, great, that exists. The data is overwhelmingly clear when we talk about some of these things. Your resistance to it is the piece that doesn't make sense. So I want to uh, I want to be respectful of your guys' time because I know we're coming towards the end of my time with you. Um, but I do want to come back to, to the end of the book. Um, and I said we'd stick a pin in it and come back to it because I, I find this concept uh, really, uh, really interesting. You obviously talked to a bunch of really smart people in the book. Uh, those of you that haven't read the book, um, uh, Carl and Meredith uh, have interviewed tons and tons of people, really uh, thought leaders and innovators in all kinds of uh, corners of of not only technology, but uh, but hospitality as well. Um, people that are, are seeing the light and, and some that aren't seeing the light. And um, it's really interesting to see that they, they've brought this all together. So I want to go back to this idea of customer centricity and this idea that you said, you know, that eventually uh, people are going to want to modify things and they're going to have individualized experiences. Talk to me about how that's possible, about how that's possible in delivery and, and how you see that rolling out over the next several years. Yeah, the uh, 
it was a really fun chapter to write this last chapter because you're right we asked everyone where, where do you see this going where do you see the world of food and re restaurant technology heading by the year 2030 and one of the themes that came out was this kind of concept of personalization 3.0 and so what do we mean by that well the reality is is that even today the amount of data that exists about your your guest and your consumer is overwhelming it's huge that the, the biggest challenge is how do you use it how do you use it in, in an effective manner yeah but yeah. if we just take a step back from that kind of complexity and just think of the different data sets that exist out there across your entire life so you went to the doctor and the doctor says you've got high blood pressure and so therefore you need to stop eating as much red meat and then you went to the gym th this morning and your personal trainers told you that you need to be you know w working out in this kind of fashion and to follow your diet plan which is also supported by your nutritionist and then you're wearing your apple watch that is keeping track of the amount of exercise that you're doing and then you notice that actually across the last three months of food ordering you've actually been ordering more salads and white meat products and then your grocery order from kroger's is actually coming through where these are the type of brands that resonate with you maybe more premium orientated brands now each of those are data sets and what we kind of suggest in the book is if you can take those data sets and put them into an environment which is almost like your own profile but that profile is owned exclusively by you and is used in such a way that is not going to be taken advantage of in the way that people are concerned about today with their data privacy rightly but it's done in such a way to be able to say if you amalgamate all this data together and apply an algorithm to it tell me what i should have for dinner tonight and it's not a brand about a restaurant it's not saying i should eat at olive garden or i should eat at, at a particular thing it's actually saying what should i have for dinner tonight and then if you take that idea and then you're actually able to say, well, look, I want to have a green chicken salad tonight. A chicken green salad. <laughs> but if you're able to have that, if you're able to get to that place, then you might get to a world whereby restaurants are bidding against each other to make your dinner. Now, that is a novel futurist kind of concept that we kind of allude to within the book. But I think it's worthwhile considering because in many ways, that is the way in which others are starting to think about how to actually make an even more personalized experience than just getting a customized email on a uh, on a random day of the week so who knows how long it will take to get to that place chip clearly there's a number of challenges that exist in that regard but i would kind of use the word blockchain and suggest that's probably one way into it you hit it uh, right at the beginning of all that like we have data we have no shortage of data we have had data uh, for, for decades, right? I was saying, you know, with open table, it's like, we've got tons of data. We just didn't know what to do with that data, right? You, you use the example, right? Like somebody's got to write down in the notes that they enjoyed this bottle of wine and then somebody has to act on it the next time they come in. And actually what we're seeing in the reservation space um, is the CRM component of like, how do you use that information to get them to come back in to try something else based on their uh, based on their purchases? And that I think is so much of, uh, of what you're talking about here. Once we, we know so much about uh, the consumer, how can we use that to make sure we let them know that we know who they are, we know what they want, and we're uniquely qualified um, to provide that for them. And that's a really exciting place. And it begins by embracing all of this. I want to do, I want to read just one little quote here. And in the book, uh, as we're wrapping things up here, but it says, you know, off premise, catering, delivering, takeout is the highest growth channel in the restaurant industry. So this, which seems to be at a saturation point, right? Restaurants everywhere. You, you put here very simply, very early in the book, right? It's 
the highest growth channel in uh, in the restaurant industry. Consumers love value and convenience, uh, and a better value, more convenient convenience comes along, they will flock to it, right? This idea that we have to keep leaning into and listening to um, who our customers are, what they want, uh, and, and be able to deliver it to them before they even really quite realize that that's what they want. I think that's so much of of where we are right now. How how do restaurant uh, owners do that? How do we how do we take all this stuff? So they go, they read the book, or they're on the fence and they haven't yet, uh, they're not yet convinced to get the book. Why should they read the book? What are they going to learn uh, through the book? And then how do they start putting this stuff into practice? Well, I think that any restaurant can benefit from reading the book or frankly, even restaurant operators, even if they're not the owner, uh, to put into context the trends that are happening around them and the things that are affecting their restaurant, for sure, uh, full stop. And then the next question is, how do you as a restaurant want to embrace some of these things or not? And not all of them are right for every restaurant. Um, There is a marketing chapter in the book where we talk about um, understanding your restaurant's personal why. Why did you start the restaurant in the first place? And what are you there to do? And the answer to that question is going to mean that the digital path that your restaurant follows is going to be different uh, depending on what your why is. And I think every restaurant needs to be more digital friendly in terms of how they Uh, engage with consumers, but they're not all going to do it in the same way. And each restaurant will find a path that makes sense for their brand. Carl, final words here. How, um, how do restaurant owners uh, take, take all of this and and run with it? In the same way as you eat an elephant bite by bite. And uh, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. It's, you know, we, we try to lay out the steps and the chapters in the book as a means to really get through it. You know, understanding the third party roles, ensuring that your menu is, is well represented. And then from there, hopefully get into a place where you can start to expand and optimize your menu. And then as you get more comfortable, as you start to uh, start to accumulate data, using that in such a way to be able to determine how you want to grow. And, and, and there are numerous different ways to be able to, to do that. And hopefully the book is is giving people a chance to be able to look upon this future of the industry as a force for good, as a real opportunity to take our industry into new realms that we've never been able to do before. And it touches on a number of different subjects, but ultimately we wrote it to help the independent restaurant owner operator, and quite honestly, even the executives in the bigger chains to really have that mindset change that you've been talking about, Chip. And hopefully um, people will get some value from it and we'd love to hear from any of your listeners and readers of the book um, about what they think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so we're going to include the link in the show notes. I want you guys to tell me, um, they can obviously go to Amazon, but are there small booksellers uh, near you guys in your community that they could perhaps support uh, to get this book? Well, the primary way, of course, would be if we're going to support first parties, buy it direct from us. Uh, you can go to deliveringthedigitalrestaurant.com and you'll be able to order your copy direct from us and we'll would be very happy to do that. Um, and of course, if you'd like to continue the journey on learning about uh, all the aspects we've touched on in the book and more because there is so much changing, uh, your, your, your listeners can listen in to our website on learn.delivery and there we're going to be using you know, content from those hundreds or so interviews chip uh, because we probably left 90 95 percent of the content on the cutting room floor and so there's a lot of really good stuff and nuggets that we'll be able able to share with people that want to continue their learning journey with us yeah excellent Uh, i said this at the very beginning i want to echo it here um the book is called delivering the digital restaurant uh i loved 
this book. I, I'm sometimes afraid about reading a book like this because I just thought, oh, it's going to be so momentary. This is going to be outdated so quickly. That is not what this book is. This book is so uh, timely and yet I think will have a legacy uh, long beyond just this moment in time uh, that we're here talking about this. Um, it's got scope. Uh, it drills down. It gets really granular. I, I loved this book um, mostly because it got me rethinking uh, a whole lot of things uh, and I spend a lot of time already thinking about this I think if you're uh, if you come at it and are willing to kind of uh, change your opinion um, shift the way you uh, you think and and look at certain things um, you're gonna get a whole lot out of this book again we'll uh, include all of those links in the show notes Carl Meredith thank you for writing this book thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day today to talk to me about this book it's been a real pleasure chip thank you thank you so much I want to thank Carl and Meredith for taking the time out of their day to join me. Uh, as promised, all of these links are in the show notes. I'm including two links to get the book. Uh, one uh, links to Amazon, if that's easier for you and you just prefer to do that, by all means, click there and go buy the book there. Uh, if you want to support uh, Carl and Mer uh, Meredith directly, that that first-person delivery model, uh, I've included the link to their website where you can buy it directly from them. Either way is totally fine. Uh, you just uh, The most important thing is that you get the book. Um, that's it for today's episode. Guys, stay creative. Uh, remember, the challenge starts today. It is not too late to join. Uh, if it's Tuesday or Wednesday and you're just listening to it now, maybe you're not listening to it on Monday, November 29th, that's okay. There's still time. Hop on. Jump in late. It's not a big deal. You're still going to get a lot out of it. Uh, really, there's kind of stuff going on all week, but this week is the week. Thank you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. I will see you next time. Restaurant Strategy is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors as well as our Patreon supporters. A special shout out to all of our Gold and Platinum members, Ty Hames, Bob and Kate Carpenter, Scott Middleton, Chuck and Denise Close, Stephen and Ann Fagan, Mario D'Amatos, and Christopher Tana. If you want to become a supporter, please go visit patreon.com slash restaurant strategy. Again, the link is in the show notes.